All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your co-host, Chris Papa, and today we are with, as always, Lisa Flicker. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm doing great. Thank you. And was... you brought on your friend, Jonathan Giannikos. 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 What? Our favorite Greek boy. Yes. Uh, people always mistake me for Greek as my last name, but I'm not Greek. But he has a long career. Um financing brokerage uh ownership he started his own firm so amazing guy and he's giving back uh through different universities and uli so please listen learn subscribe and share with your friends have a great weekend well thanks for coming on the podcast john you you and lisa have have known each other for a while now is that correct i just met you yeah i i think lisa was one of the first recruiting professionals that I talked to when I first came to New York. If you can believe this, Lisa, you were, of course, about four years old at the time. I think it was <laughs> 1997. And so sometime in that range, she was one of the first people that uh, I connected with in the New York region. And uh, here we sit today a few years forward. So relationships work, Chris. They certainly do. Well, it's a, we were talking this morning to somebody just about the return to office and work from home and all these things. And that doesn't happen by just, you know, working behind a Zoom screen all day long. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But it's, it is definitely a very amplified and controversial narrative. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Well, in 1997, I was still at Rutgers, um, but not too far away from... Uh, so I was in Jersey, but the, yeah, we, we actually, yeah, we had, we had, we're doing a, um, an asset management informal sort of round table in, in, in a month or so. So we're, we're, we've been speaking to all these asset managers at these large, uh, institutions. Um, a lot of them have office space and, you know, trying to solve that dilemma at the moment. And yeah, I mean, the, the benefits, of being back in the office. Um, we, we have a few clients that are back in the office five days a week, which is, um, very rare, but mm-hmm. most are not remote a hundred percent of the time, which is good. Uh, but yeah, the whole, I mean, I moved out to the Bay area 11 years ago. Um, actually 12 years ago. And like, so I'm, I go up to San Francisco where I used to have an office once a week. Um, and just, yeah, just to meet people. Um, go to lunches and all that type of stuff. And it, it makes such a difference. But like, I, I really miss when I'm back in New York and I'm in the office because we're in the office three, like three days a week at least. Um, mm-hmm. And I, man, I really miss seeing everybody um, and just talking and just like, and Lisa's always out meeting people all the time throughout New York. She's, she's constantly on the move. Well, you know, I think that's, that's one of the greatest challenges that we have with, um, it's, I hate to say this, but the younger generation who came into this sort of professional narrative around COVID where virtually no one was in the office. So they all of a sudden believe, well, I guess this is how it works. And as you just mentioned, there's so much that is lost um, in this two dimensional world. It just, it think about all the various things we learned about reading a room, about navigating the hallways, about, seeking people out as mentors, becoming mentors over time. 
so much of that is, I'm not going to say that it was or is lost because that's a bit dramatic, but it clearly has been put on hold and we've clearly had to step back. Um, I'm optimistic. I, I think we will regroup. I definitely believe that the dynamic of the office world has changed, I think, permanently. Mm. Um, I think those that have said that five days a week back in the office is just how it's going to be. I think they're pining for a bit of nostalgia, to be honest with you. But this whole concept of not going back or going back one day a week, human beings are tribal. You know, we, we need to be with one another. We feed off each other's intellect. Um our energy. So again, even though I'm later in the chronology, I'm optimistic like somebody who's younger about where it all ends up. And the interesting thing is you see a lot of the decisions, of course, are made by people in our generation, but in a market where people are looking for employment and it's a tight labor market, they have some power. And right now the power is shifting. So you know, it, it's interesting. And we, you know, I, I love as we're going to talk through your career, you know, we can think about like, it would be so different if you were starting out today in, in a more um, two dimensional world, if you will. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, listen, is the thing that I think anybody who's been on earth for a reasonable amount of time would affirm nothing is permanent uh, except change. And, you know, one of the things that I mentioned um you know, I was sitting around with some people at a board meeting recently. We were talking about young people. We were talking about mentoring, guiding, leading. And I think, you know, we've been fortunate in that perhaps our children maybe didn't have the same level of intensity and adversity that perhaps some of us have had. And with that comes maybe um, a lack of muscle memory about how to deal with true challenges and unpredictability and perhaps COVID was and is their answer to some of the things that we went through, be it a recession or whatever, mm-hmm. and they've learned to adapt. You know, I've got two young children, comparatively, one is almost 30, one is 25, but I look at their early phase of career versus mine, and there is commonality, but there's some remarkable differences too, and it hasn't been easy for them. So, um, something to be said for being toughened up a bit. And I think this is part of how they're going about being toughened up. Absolutely. What do you hear from them? I'm always curious what, anytime I get a chance to speak with somebody and, you know, we're always talking to like younger kids, mentoring, have you, I love to hear the kind of the thought from that side. Well, I've got, I have a bias with my older child, my son, who's in commercial real estate in capital markets brokerage. So his narrative of office um, expectations is not dissimilar probably to many of your asset management or brokerage clients, right? One must speak one's book. So that's that. My daughter is more in media, social media, where um, young dynamic company uh, that was recently bought by a very large media company. So they moved from being completely remote to now the expectation that at least two days a week and perhaps this year, three days a week, they'll be down in you know, an iconic office tower in downtown Manhattan, sort of like, you know, back to the future. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I've got two different narratives coming out of my household and my wife is a serial entrepreneur who has magically managed to avoid a conventional office for 20 years. So I, you know, there are moments when she angers me with her uh, casual dress. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and also it's all industry related too. I mean, and also kind of the kind of personality you are. Like, I'd imagine if you're drawn to like desktop support, like it's a certain different type of person than if you're drawn to a brokerage role, right? And so, you know, guy, people, folks like like us or Lisa and I who are all you know we're connect we're connectors. It's like we want to be around people, and there's a, probably a reason we fell into this industry because of that type of personality. Right. And so we want to be Absolutely. in the office and yeah. But if you're a, you know, desktop support and you're like, I just want to sit in front of my computer. It's like, it doesn't matter where that is. And so, yes, you know, personality yes. wise. So, um, it's probably, I mean, the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle. Right. Um, you know, there is a camaraderie. Like the truth. Yeah. There is a camaraderie <laughs> for a lot of folks and the learning and the junior learning, you know, being a junior person and learning, but then there's probably some roles where it doesn't really matter. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it also does call into question the the future viability of various forms of suburban office, things like call centers, back office um, infrastructure. Um, the way we looked at that, um, you know, whether it was scale, whether it was low cost benefit analysis as an employer or you know somebody who owned a company. Now, if you can do that through technology, now that entire occupancy cost has really been removed. And those folks typically might not necessarily need to connect and to collaborate as much as, say, folks in your profession, my profession, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I, I came back to this comment about COVID and about technology. Um, you know, During my time um, of traveling globally and intensely globally, you know, it, it's an amazingly taxing thing on any human, even if we say it's really exciting and dynamic. And the concept now that it doesn't remove travel as we knew it entirely, but goodness, have we become much more efficient with how we travel, the expenditure of that travel, the lost time of that travel, whether it's commutation or airflow. I mean, I, Lisa knows this story, Chris. I mean, I remember back at JLL at one point, a triple red eye across Asia you know, from Singapore to Seoul to Tokyo and back. And if you ask me if that was a top, you know, 1200 choice for what I'd like to do this year, I would suggest it was 1201. So. <laughs> that sounds awful. Yeah, that's, yeah, I, I think, um, I take trips to New York just sometimes because I'm like, I just need to go back and see people. Or like yeah. next week, I'm going to LA to visit a client that's opening an office. They're five days a week in the office. They're private equity, and um, they're inviting yeah. me to their office opening. And I'm like, yeah, I just want to see people. Like, who knows who I'll meet there? Yada yada that's yada. Um, and it's just good to get out, and it fires me up. You know, my juices and all that type of stuff. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, I mean, I live. It also depends where you where you live too. Like, I mean, the Bay Area is so dependent upon technology. That's where I live, and you know, if you go, when I go downtown San Francisco, it's, there's not a lot of people walking around. I mean, New York is yeah. much more populated. I don't know about Boston, but like New York is, feels like it's, I mean, it is a much bigger city, but it feels way like, like the pandemic never happened in New York compared to where I am. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I'm, you know, I'm, so I'm looking out my apartment now at downtown Boston and Boston's really four stories. It's, the dynamic of Cambridge with life science and biotech. It's the seaport where I happen to live, which is really, you know, 
a city that was created over the last 10 years out of nothing but dock lands and old, you know, abandoned, uh, you know, brick buildings, you know, uh, brick and timber type of stuff, which is now an incredible center of both retail and office and residential dynamism. The financial district, which depending on the time of day and the day of week you go, can look dystopian. And then the back bay, which, you know, places like Newbury Street and, and the Public Garden, and that really feels like it used to. So Boston's an interesting story. And I, and I bet if you looked at different parts of New York, maybe not now, but even as recently as six or nine months ago, you'd have different storylines. And, and it was really interesting. And I know you guys have probably heard this story. There was a, they looked at the castle systems intensity of population of buildings by turnstile velocity. And they compared that to the revenues in the retail corridors and the restaurants of New York. And, and this isn't the case now, but I think it was certainly the case, let's say at various times last year, the amount of castle occupancy was still hovering between 40 and 50%, but the revenue and the traffic and the retail and the restaurant corridors of New York was back to and exceeding pre-pandemic levels. So the comedy was certain people were saying, I'm not comfortable being in the office given the proximity to others, but they didn't mind to be cheek to jowl in a hip restaurant restaurant yeah. in New York. So, you know, does the word incongruous come to mind? In real life? Well, that was a problem with a lot of young, younger folks, uh, at least like they have social media and we see that social media and it's like, wait a right. minute, like you just were out at a club last, last night and you won't come to the office today. Like, I get it. I totally get it. But yeah, you know. social distancing in a mosh pit seems elusive to me. Yeah, when you have right. enough alcohol, it kind of it kills all the COVID potential. So, statistically, <laughs> I guess it's possible. I don't know. Well, I also think that you know it is interesting spending a lot of time in and around New York City these days because last night, being in Midtown, and going to some of the bars and restaurants, it was pretty quiet. Eight nine p.m. I felt mm. like, but the few nights before being down in like the Hudson Yards area, sure. there was a lot of activity. There were a lot of young professionals, 9 p.m. coming down to grab their coffee. So, and I feel like the lore of the city, and obviously, you know, maybe I'm talking your son's book, but the lore of the city is like, you can put a lot of people in, a cl in close proximity and they're all going to work really hard and they're all going to work really late. And anytime I've seen executives in other cities, I feel like there is a little bit more of a, like, we go home for dinner, and even if we work in the evenings, we do. Yeah. But I felt like it felt very old school being down in Hudson Yards. Oh, yeah. Because there were a lot of young people in suits, you know, 8 or 9 p.m. going down for a coffee break. And it felt good. It felt yeah, yeah. comfortable, right? I think that's the, this whole narrative around the, the demise of the Gateway City, I just think is such foolishness. I think it's clearly we've got multi dimensions of dysfunction in our urban environments, right? Whether it be safety, crime, infrastructure, it goes on. We've been talking about these, these issues for decades, but it still doesn't matter to a young person who graduates from school, wants a high energy, dynamic, sometimes excessively expensive way to live but they want to be surrounded with their demographic. They want the energy. They want the lifestyle. 
Um, they they want to be able to tell the tough stories of you know three or four of them in an apartment because that's part of you know many young people's story, right? So. I think as long as employers continue to say, I know where the magnets of young talent are, and I know that I want to be part of those, you know, technology, finance, forests of innovation, intellectual driving, it's going to continue. And this concept of everybody moving to Orlando or to Boise, I just think is utter foolishness. And I think it was a moment in time um, so I'm a huge believer in the dynamism of major cities around the world, not at the expense of secondary cities such as they're referred to, but not in lieu of. I just I just think that was just the media seeing that there was terror in eyeballs and it sold papers and it sold clicks. So well, you just I saw with really Tesla's do. headquarters just returned back to the Bay Area. So I mean, yeah, that's because you know Stanford's here, Stanford and Cal and like you that's right. really strike you know good engineering talent. So you're gonna go yeah. where the cheap labor is the cheapest yeah. labor the cheapest which is labor. the young that's people right. they're the cheapest labor yeah. that's right that's right um i also i also like this is we're working on a friday right but like yeah i don't know how many people actually working as hard as they would on fridays anymore like who's really works on fridays anymore and will that productivity affect the economy in any way and if not like maybe we four-day work week kind of is like i mean some weren't people proposing that like it's kind of yes if we they said um, the full day friday is needed i always love the the marginal depth of a sample size as being the storyline for a civilization so there was a study chris i think you're referencing that there were somewhere in 60 61 companies in the uk were polled about them working four days a week and saying that their productivity, however they define that, you never get the fine printed eight font about what's really happening. Mm -hmm. But okay, so they're supposedly operating at a higher level of productivity and they're in the office one day less a week. Okay, perhaps. Um, but I guess, you know, Lisa, you mentioned this about people that may be in, in cities where they go home for dinner. I think the question becomes how many hours are people working? That's one metric, right? What's the revenues of the firm? What type of incremental growth in revenues of the firm vis-a-vis -vis their headcount has occurred? I just, I think this is a storyline that's going to take time because, you know, anybody that has young children, especially if it's a working, a working lady, let's say, or however you define the household, they have responsibilities to their family. They come home. How many of them aren't back on their computer after dinner until who knows what hour, either on international calls, preparing presentations? So it's certainly not a FaceTime thing, which we, and I don't use FaceTime like we're talking about it now back in the old days. Yeah. <laughs> Your boss could see you. Um, I'm not a believer that productivity goes up just because people are more comfortable. Um, but again, it depends on the industry, right? I mean, I think that's, that's where this is going to take time. This is still an incredible, unprecedented social experiment that we're going through. And it's, I think it's just starting personally. I, I agree with that. But I also think what's interesting is looking at that Friday. I think once people say, okay, work from home on Friday, don't work as hard on Friday, does it slowly erode Thursday, right? Does Thursday become the new Friday? And like, where does that take us as a, you know, and I'm, I'm not, 
claiming that I can like solve the world's problems. But I think to myself, like, where does that bring us as a superpower, right? Like, how do you compete if all of your people are not all in? Well, it, it also, it, it could be a self-fulfilling Darwinian outcome where as that person who supposedly was asking for Friday off or to work less intensely, they choose to have it leak into Thursday. I would suggest to you that decisions will be made by people who are responsible for hiring, retaining, and advancing people. They're simply going to go with those who are more dependable, predictable, more intense. I had a really, I, I spoke up at the, um, up at UMass Lowell a couple of days ago at the Riverhawk Scholars Academy, which is this fascinating program. It's a national program for first generation students. Okay. And I had a cross, large cross section of athletes, but also ambassadors of the Riverhawk uh, academy where they have five or 10 freshmen and sophomores that they're responsible for. And this very articulate young lady said, do you believe that work balance is real or is it imagined by our generation? And I said, it's sort of like how you define success. It's really up to you how you define balance. And I think if somebody says, I don't want an employer to dictate how I spend my weekends. Let's, let's, let's look at that. Then they probably are going to be moving away from being an associate in an investment banking or in a law firm, perhaps, right? Versus somebody that says, you know, Chris's point, there's going to be people who are coders or they're back office people. They're almost indifferent to a work cycle of a week or a day. They could work all night if they had to, right? So, mm-hmm. I keep coming back to this. We are in the midst of a really interesting change as a society, as employers, as board members, as entrepreneurs, that I don't think is going to become clear until perhaps a year or two from now. That's when I think we're going to be mostly on the other side of this. And there are enormous implications for us as investors, as owners of office buildings, et cetera, et cetera, about how we adapt to society's changes, because again, real estate is nothing more than a housing function of GDP, right? That's all we do. We house the economy, nothing more. <laughs> all right. And when you talk about the first generation college students, and I, I always like to hope that those are the students who are listening to the podcast and learning, yeah. because I think whenever I'm talking to young students that don't have parents who have been through it, you can see... It, there's just such a clear distinction, right? I go, Project Destin is an organization that I do some mentoring yeah. of the students or ULI. And I find that the students who don't have that in parents tend to think, well, why am I staying late? I'm not making overtime. Like I've literally had students say this, or I have an internship at this big organization. Um, you know, I get in at 9.05 and I'm like, no, no, your job is to be the first one there and the last one out. And if it, even if it's 7 p.m., if there's something that they're asking you to do, they're good. You want to get that recommendation. That's the yeah. number one thing. And so, you know, I'd love what do you, what do you think when you're dealing with the first generation college students? You know, I'd love to hear some of the things that you say to them as advice that you've learned through your career, because I think that's something our listeners will really sink their teeth into. So so the first thing is um, there's an interesting misunderstanding or a lack of acknowledgement about what a first generation student is and how they're defined. Um, 
and and the sensitivities and challenges that they have that we perhaps never experienced or didn't experience at the same level of intensity. Things like, let's take the easy ones, a, a less than perhaps predictable construct of the home, whether it's single parent, whether there is food insecurity, housing insecurity, issues regarding having to work one or two jobs to pay for their tuition because there's no financial support other than maybe a bit of a scholarship or some aid. There's also a really interesting thing that is a little less, a little less intensive now, but two years ago was really interesting. Students actually chose to not be identified as a first-generation student for fear that they would be labeled, identified as something perhaps less than the traditional student body. Things that, you know, in my generation, if you were able to sort of be the first of your kind, you wore that as a badge of honor. And that's not necessarily always the case for certain first-generation students. To your point, Lisa, I think it's going to sound redundant to any guidance that somebody who's more experienced would give somebody who's less experienced. I think it clearly starts with a commitment to extraordinary hard work. However, that's defined in whatever role you are offered as a chance to prove yourself. The second thing, and I, I really believe this, especially now where I'm you know, older, um, a passionate commitment to lifelong learning and intellectual curiosity. I, I think that may in and of itself assure an evergreen level of thought and an evergreen level of being able to add to an organization, whatever role you find it in. If it's a first year associate, a VP and an MD, CEO of a company, me as, you know, doing more board work now. Um, I think this ability to bring an expansive thought process to any circumstance assures that you add value in any role, right? And I think the other, one of the other real keys is bring yourself who you are, not who someone wants you to be. That's really interesting. And I, I bet you guys, because you deal with so much hiring and leadership coaching, it's a really interesting thing as somebody goes through their career to find their voice when they're not speaking in a manner or with context to be heard in a way that they hope their audience would be most receptive to them. And that's something that comes with time, right? But if you can bring the candor of who you are, your value proposition and your prism on the world, I mean, think about DEI, right? I mean, this whole issue of of diversity, inclusion, equity, it's less about gender and pigmentation in my, in my estimation. It is more about how do you see the world and this business circumstance through your lens? And can we bring a multiple dimension to response, responding to an issue as opposed to, you know, a generic, you know, MBA oriented white male who happens to be, you know, a boomer. Um, right. I think that's where the dynamism of diversity and inclusion really, I think that's where it gets amplified for a company. I agree with that. I think that's, it's really good advice. And I think it's hard for you. I was just at a ULI DEI event this week. And I think the challenge is, and by the way, this is a challenge for anyone entering the workforce, right? You, you kind of want to fit in. You want to make your, you like want to get under the radar. You want, and then bringing your authentic self, but yet working hard and being a part of the, construct of the organization it's it's interesting for everyone these sure, days sure well, i yeah. just think it's hard i mean there's less of a desperation when you 
when you get comfortable, there's kind of, there's less desperation. There's less, there's more, when there's more options, it's, it's as a human being, it's the focus isn't as narrow. Right. And so like when it's like you grow, when you have nothing and it's like, all right, well, I've, once I'm, I'm going to just going to work my ass off. It's easy. It's, it's not easy, but it's almost like you don't have the option to go snowboarding this weekend. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> seriously, like, it's like, you don't have the option to like, like, all right, I don't want to work an extra hour. Like I'll still be able to pay my rent. Like, but there also is that that other argument of like how much success is do we you know the whole structure of the economy is like does everyone have to get as much as they can as much you know as quickly as they can or is there is there a balance like maybe you know there's a lot of miserable people in, in America who are very very rich yeah no it you know it's true and I I think I'll come at it slightly differently I think. Part of the beauty and the blessing of somebody who comes from very little, as long as they're nurtured by somebody within their family or friends or acquaintances, mentors, big brothers, sisters, whatever it is, the balance may never be attainable because there's always quietly that specter of self-doubt that specter of imposter syndrome. And what's really interesting, and I I know because you guys speak to so many executives, in a quiet moment after the facade of the mission statement and the plenary speeches are gone, each one of us is still trying to prove something to someone, whomever that is. And I think that's where why I still believe our country is still the magnet for greatness. Um, You know, if you look at the, and there's a statistic that I won't get right, but if you look at the amount of entrepreneurs that start their own businesses, the preponderance of their profile, they are immigrants, right? From the time when my grandfather and his three brothers started a variety store in an ice cream parlor north of Boston that fed 16 people and housed them um, to somebody that starts an amazing biotech company who comes from India or China or whatever. So I think we're all trying to prove something to ourselves or to somebody else, maybe somebody who's either alive or not. Um, So I still believe balance is almost impossible because we're all a little imbalanced, right? That's why we're always striving. That's the, that's the uniqueness of the human condition As, as I get philosophical in my older age. (laughs) No, I love it. You know, I always say there's no balance, but what happens is whatever is the most pressing, it's like whack-a-mole, right? (laughs) So today, you know, my kids are sick and I need to take care of them. Oh, my, you know, I have this pitch. Oh, I have this client that needs to. And so I feel like it's like whatever rises to this left, you know, to the level above the other issues, that becomes the issue you deal with. And that's the balance but, you know, I think balance is a... Yeah, um, there's no true balance, I don't think. It's always right. trying. It's always adjusting. Uh, there's no destination, right? Right. Even well, ultimately, there will be. We just not... Well, none right. of us really yeah, yeah. Yeah. hurry up. <laughs> That's right. Uh, how did you get... So you mentioned your your grandfather and your store. Like, where, where did you have uh, an interest in real estate? Where did that come from? Um, how did you get started this journey? My... Um, my Grandfather and his brothers came from um, the 
Peloponnese section of Greece, which is, if you know, is down south of Greece. Um, there's a city there, Kalamata. My grandmother came from one side of great the olives. village of the mountains. What's that? They have great olives. Great. And right. olive oil. Um, so they came over, you know, call it in the in the in the 19 teens. Um, they worked in factories. Um, they started a, a small variety store that I actually worked in as a, as a young boy. That's why I can actually read numbers upside down because as my dad would would use the cash register for some things and handwritten notes for others, I would, wow. I would watch that. Um, I didn't really understand what tax evasion was, but perhaps there was something going on. I don't really know. Um, <laughs> don't worry, the statute of limitations is over. You're good. The cash, you don't know. Adults of the family, right? Yeah. I don't know. But no, I actually, you know, I... I came into real estate by accident. Um, I had gone to um, called U Lowell at the time. Now it's UMass Lowell. Um, and my senior year, I was um, I was one of the captains of the lacrosse team. Didn't really know where I was going to work. I had um, an opportunity to go into the management training program of CVS in Rhode Island. I was going to work at Woolworth and Woolco in Manhattan. If you can imagine, I guess that's whatever you know Walmart is now. I don't really know. Um, I convinced a small plastics firm in New Hampshire that I was worthy of a final interview. And when I showed up with the other plastics engineers and they, they were talking about their design features and how they could inject certain moldings, I was asking if the cafeteria was subsidized. So clearly I was not made an offer after that interview. So, but we did manage through that college process. Um, our college lacrosse coach was very uh, friendly with the senior banker of a, of a local bank. And lo and behold, they had a management training program they were starting to create. So my my coach said, you don't need to go to practice today. Um, I'd like you to go down and take an interview with this bank. So I did. Um, they made me an offer, which um, it was a probationary offer, which I think at the time annualized salary was $14,000, which I'd never been even, I never knew that much money existed. So I, <laughs> I thought I had one Powerball. So I started out making student loans, opening up checking accounts, um, working in the in the loan accounting department. And one day the senior men said, we're going out to Clinton, Massachusetts to meet with a large developer who has a project that we'd like to finance. Would you like to come? So I said, of course. So we went out and imagine, if you will, a massive construction site where there's gravel and sand being moved around. There's foundations here. There's backhoes. And there was this small gentleman and there was a big wooden uh, you know, lectern like where plans would be laid out. And all of my bosses were looking attentively and pointing. And he was describing where the roads were going and these townhomes here, these single family homes. And I didn't know whether it was real or my, my bosses were just out of their minds. So we drove back to the bank and we had a, I remember we had a pickup lunch in the boardroom and they said, what did you think of that experience? And I said, it's amazing. Is that man really going to create homes and different things for people? And they said, yeah, he's a developer. And I said, what's our role in that? And they said, well, if we believe in his dream and his plan, we're going to finance it. And all of a sudden it clicked in me that in finance, in banking, I actually had a way to create something that was basically dirt and sand through people like this gentleman. And that literally was the spark that told me real estate development, entrepreneurship, finance, you can create something out of nothing. And I, I thought it was magic. And that was literally the first step in what has been a really fascinating, I'd like to think, 40-year journey. But it started with 
Al Bafaro in Ridgefield condominiums in Clinton, Massachusetts in 1984, if you can believe it. That's amazing. <laughs> it's crazy. Wow. Wow. And you live in it those, is, you live in those condos right now. Isn't that right, John? <laughs> Al Bafaro never built an, a 22 story high rise. Otherwise I could have, who knows? <laughs> I thought that was the, 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 the miracle ending to the story. Right. <laughs> the, the arc of mediocrity. Yes. No, it wasn't. No. <laughs> and then, so you're, yeah, I mean, you, so 84, it's, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not good at math, but it's at least 20, 30 years since it's 84. Um, where you've been, you were at JLL for a long time. Yeah. Um, can you just kind of take us through the different type of roles you've had within real estate? Sure. So you're in the financing side of real estate and yeah, just yeah, kind of I, the different I, roles. I like and, to think, you know, I had a dear friend of mine say I was one of the most interesting journeyman pitchers he'd ever met in real estate, which <laughs> I just thought was kind of a cute compliment. Um, no, I, I've been blessed. I, I, I've taken chances. Um, I was never afraid if I felt that my opportunities were limited or the direction that an organization was going in, I wasn't the right person to optimize what was next, or I didn't think that I could learn more. Um, I was willing to take chances. I was willing to make decisions that some people would look at it and say, oh my God, you know, you're working for this firm or that firm. Why would you ever leave that firm? And I, I always just felt if you weren't learning, if you weren't growing, if you weren't challenged, and if you weren't really adding value, you were really taking up space. So my career is really, my journey has been touching finance, touching the owner operator side of the world, touching the portfolio manager, institutional fiduciary side of the world, being an entrepreneur a few times, giving that a shot, you know, having modest to mediocre success, but continuing to learn from it. Um, the JLL experience was fascinating because it was the most responsibility that I'd ever had in terms of size of an organization, number of people that I was responsible for helping. Um, and then, you know, now moving into this new transition, at least for the time being of going from being directly responsible, you know, for a group of people, be it large or small to now being looked at as somebody who can help a founder, an entrepreneur, an institution decide where they should go strategically in these board positions that I've taken on. It's, it's fascinating to just sort of see where all of us pick things up along the way. And I, I'd like to think that at this point in my career, my greatest benefit to people is giving my view of a circumstance to the culmination of my shared experiences. Um, and I, somebody said to me, did you ever feel like any move that you made was a mistake in retrospect? And I honestly can say, while some of them may not have been as pleasant as we would have liked or were more lucrative or less lucrative than I would have liked, the perspective that I have now when I'm called upon to be involved in, in anything, I would not have that breadth or depth of perspective if I hadn't taken each one of those steps and missteps along the way. Um, so, of course, I, don't, I, I, I tend to meander a bit with my with my uh, my commentary. If you want to be more me to be more precise, I will be guided as the witness. <laughs> that was great. We love it. We love it. We don't even need to be here. You could just ask the question. <laughs> hey, most talking of class of nineteen eighty, that's a high school. What'd you expect? Oh, really? <gasps> yes. That's, that's awesome. great. That's great. 
And so now you're 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 you left J JLL. You're you're sitting on a lot of boards. Yeah. What is I mean? I was nominated for some board, not just some board. It was Mission Housing. Um, I, what do boards? What do board members even do? <laughs> you know, really great question because if it's a, if it's if it's a truly effective board, they do a lot. And if it's a ceremonial board, it's an incredible waste of time. And now I've gotten to the point where I actually know the difference. So in my nonprofit philanthropic board work, which involves being um, on the global board of directors of ULI and I'm involved in the, um, I'm on the board of directors of the business school at UMass Lowell in the athletic department. Um, it's really about driving the mission of the business school. It's about how do we effectuate bringing a greater diverse group of students to the business school? How do we drive the brand of the business school? On the athletic department, it's really focused on leadership and diversity and mentoring of our athletes, both captains and team members. Um, I'm very involved uh, working with the lacrosse coach. We have a new lacrosse coach there and okay, cool. uh, being sort of consigliere to him as he creates what I hope is going to be an exciting new program on the it's so full circle and beautiful because your coach did that for you and now you're doing yeah it yeah it's it's, it's a, that's a beautiful thing you know with with Urban Land Institute which has so many different missions my focus is all about diversity of young people coming into the program um, coming into the industry it's about education um so I, that's my part of ULI, why I love being on the board for that specific reason. On the corporate board side, um, I just took on uh, a board position with one of the largest private developers and owners of uh, high-rise multifamily in the United States, Holland Partners Group. Yeah. I actually um, just took on a new board seat with a really fascinating uh, non-traditional, non-traded REIT that's going to become effective in a couple of months. And, and that's very exciting. Um, dealing with a, a sponsor I've known for about 20 years. So, you know, I'm, those are all going to be very active and are very active roles because we're driving the direction of the business. We're offering views on places that we should invest, not invest. How do we grow the company? How do we work on succession planning? It's a whole bunch of things, um, all of which is really fascinating. That's awesome. I love that stuff too. I would, now I really want to be on a board. Right. <laughs> well, you know, the thing I would say is um, because you guys, I, I, I know you less, know Lisa a little bit more. You guys are in touch with so many different people and you're providing such valuable counsel to them about how they grow, sustain, expand their businesses. These relationships that you're building, they're going to come around more often where they said in this circumstance, you provided such great counsel to me. I need that perspective, but now I need it in a different place. And I came to understand your thought process. And now I'd like to apply that thought process in a different place. Arguably in places you might not think today that you could add value, but lo and behold, you might. And that's kind of the fun and mystery of life as you move forward. I love it. As we get a little bit, a little bit older, just for me, I'll say. Um, I think one of the things that's been fun is being able to help with the succession planning and kind of taking all of the human capital executive search work and now work on like what should or how should an organization be structured? How should you know we deal with a an aging, usually patriarch? You know, mm -hmm. it, how do we how do we deal with that? How do we put the right people? 
get the right people on the bus and make sure it's going in the right direction. So, um, yeah, that's that's just fascinating. That's yeah. I love that stuff. You know, what's interesting though about it. And and it's funny. I I always tell this story. Um, and you know, as, as you guys know, as you, as you get a little bit older, the story usually stays consistent, but it can, there's some little variability to it. I remember how surprising it was at the time. So, when I was at this bank in Lowell, one of the things I did was I, because I, I was raised in an immigrant family and I can speak Greek. They said, Hey, there's all these entrepreneurs in Lowell mass that own these pizza places with apartments up above, et cetera, et cetera. You know, maybe you could bring them to our bank. So they were all like people that were in my church in Ipswich. So I went and said hello to them and talked to them in Greek. And next thing you knew, we were talking about their future for their children, what they wanted to do with their business, you know, Jimmy's one, he wanted to be Jimmy's two, three, and four pizza places, whatever. And then I realized as I moved forward in my career, different times where, whether it was a major pension fund in Ohio, or whether it was the CEO of a public company, that approach to breaking down a problem for somebody and being present and willing to give a perspective, that's the same thing. So what you were just talking about, you know, the people that you meet, where you may be asked to be on a board later, it's a cumulative effect of being present, listening to people, being objective and not having a bias that is for you. That's one of the things I mentioned the other day in a leadership session with some students is the greatest definition of a leader is somebody who's truly selfless, not advertising themselves to be selfless. Um, I think people know the difference. Well, I could definitely say you fall into the selfless category. I've I've watched you as a as a junior person to a senior person to a leader, and it's been phenomenal to watch. So, Should all those. I, companies, do you want the that, bill sent by Venmo, or do, do you still accept? <laughs> Those companies who have you on the board should be, they should be very thankful they got you. Thank you, Lisa. So. It's very nice of you to say. Well, yeah. And you just being selfless coming on this podcast. I mean, we're, we're paying you. I'm kidding. We're not paying you. Uh, <laughs> you know, volunteering your time to, to share your experience, which is awesome. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. This is fun. So are you, uh, you said it's cold in, uh, in Boston today? It is. We, um, we got rain on the Cape down at the elbow of the Cape where I am. And I came back here and there was snow and it's 28 and it's very windy. So um, I'm headed out to San Diego for a board meeting on Tuesday oh, of next you. week. And they're reporting that we're supposed to get some level of precipitation. I just hope it's wet, not white. because It actually uh, snowed a little bit in San Francisco yesterday, which is insane. I heard that like in the mountains. Of I was LA, on a Zoom were... call with someone and they're like, we're talking and they're like what the heck is that and i was like it's like oh my god this is that's snow i was like that's so strange what was that rem song it's the end of the world as we know know. it but i feel fine i feel fine (laughs) nicely that was well done well since it's cold there you're in luck because you have just entered the hot seat The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. 
They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Oh my goodness. All right. <laughs> Take that sweater off. Ignore my V-neck sweater. <laughs> uh, all right. Question number one. Do you have a book and or podcast recommendation? Um, I'm more of a book person. I'm very drawn to tactical experiences. Two recent books that I read, I, I read quite a bit. Um, one is a book um, you may have, have heard about it. It's called From Strength to Strength. It was written by Arthur Brooks, um, president of the American Enterprise Institute, as I recall. And it's all about finding purpose as you move through your career. Hmm. Um, and how does one take all that one has accumulated and then find a way to harvest that for the benefit of others over an extended period of time. It's a fascinating story and a purposeful life. Um, so that's really fun. And the other one, kidding about um, the direction or the end game. Um, I've been wanting to read um, the writings of Marcus Aurelius, who was the Roman emperor. I think he was the 16th or 15th Roman emperor um, called Meditations. And I spent quite a bit of time reading that over the summer. Um, my son was getting married uh, over Labor Day weekend. I was being a little philosophical. And his writings are all about the fact that our time in the world as we understand it is a vapor. It's not even a moment in the continuum of the universe. So how do you spend that time? With whom do you spend it? What is it that you're doing in that fraction of a nanosecond with which you find yourself in this present form. And I just thought it was fascinating because one of the things for me, um, I had a wonderful experience at JLL. I was given such responsibility. I, I really had a chance to be a global citizen, fly all over the world, do all these things. But the thing that struck me about it was time to move on was this whole theory about how do you spend the valuable time you have left? And Aurelius's writings are very much about that. Um, so those are probably the two that struck home the most of the probably 25 books I've read since I left JLO in June of last year. So those are great. Those, those have not been recommended before. So thank you. You heard love it here. <laughs> so obviously you've done a tremendous amount of deals in your life. Of the deals that you've done, what's the most memorable to you? Oh my goodness. Um, that's a great, a great question. Um, I, I'll give you two if I could, and they're going to be at polar opposites of value. Um, the small one was I was brought in by a family office's advisor while I was at Transwestern to refinance one Broadway, which if you know, downtown Manhattan, it's this classic old building that sits literally at the nose of the oh. tip of the island. And I, think I've been in I that. came in. What's that? I think I've been in that building. 
I bet it, the, when I financed it with help from a gentleman from Washington, D.C., um, there was only one tenant. It was a law firm that had been there since, you know, you know, the grain industry took hold, at, you know, in the East River. And anyway, punchline was there was this fascinating Ph.D. doctor who represented the family, very erudite, intelligent person. I went through my whole pitch and he said, this is all very fascinating and you're very thorough. And he slipped a piece of paper across to me with a pen. And he said, I'd like you to write the three names of the sources of financing that you're going to call this afternoon to get me the best terms. And I was, I froze because he said, because by being able to answer this question or not, I'll know whether you truly have mastery of this opportunity and who the right financing source is for me. Taught me an amazing lesson in being prepared that people don't want to see 200 names they want to see who do you actually believe can execute flawlessly for what they need you to do. And that was maybe a $20 million financing. On the other side, um, one of the larger deals I ever worked on was helping JP Morgan's corporate real estate group monetize about $500 million worth of their wholly owned real estate all around the United States. And they had a gentleman working who ran their global real estate. It's a fascinating gentleman. His name was George Ross, one of the most interesting clients I ever had in my life. But he was one of the most ferocious, demanding, old school leaders I ever met. And um, we ended up selling uh, the transaction. It was a really challenging deal. Brookfield ended up buying it. Um, it was a $450, $500 million deal. But it was the first time where, even though I was working for a major corporation, I truly felt like I was executing the trade for George. And what was amazing about that was the most memorable part of it was he loved to call me Zorba because I'm Greek. <laughs> and he, I remember he, he touched my cheek with his hand when we closed and they said, Zorba, you're a good kid and you really know how to get shit done. <laughs> and I never forgot it because if you think about it, here I was on the 46th floor where Jamie Dimon would walk around, you know, at, at the Park Avenue Tower before they rebuilt it. And my history of being a Greek kid in Ipswich came back through George Ross calling me Zorba. Like, you can't make this stuff up. You just can't. So I have the That's so great. <laughs> so those are two that just come to mind as memorable. And they taught me a lot about life and uh, about being prepared and being true. That's a great story, Zorba. <laughs> uh, what do you look for in hiring folks? And like, do you have any sort of interesting interview questions that you ask them? Um, I, I tend to, like anytime I meet anybody, I, I, I try to get to the essence of who they are, um, how they're wired, what's important to them, how are they raised, where they come from. I spend a lot of time understanding the human. Um, you know, questions for me are probably around um, who do they who do they look to in a moment of challenge that they trust and why do they trust that person? Um, tell me about how you've helped someone in a moment when you really didn't have the time to do it, but you did it anyway, because it really gets me under the hood of whether they truly could become a leader. Um, of a small team or of an enormous corporation. I think the other thing yeah. I try to understand is, you know, how have they managed 
a challenge, typically a traumatic one, because what I find is, and it's disappointing sometimes, you truly learn the most about somebody in a moment of true peril, of true financial professional duress, where they will fall back on how they have been raised and trained. And as somebody who has been blessed with being very responsible for large situations over time, and and now especially in some of these board situations, which are companies that have billions of dollars of responsibility, um, you learn a lot about whether you'd want to be in the trenches with somebody. Um, There's a gentleman that sits on the board of the business school at Lowell who coined a phrase which I thought was hilariously accurate. I said, Jerry, what do you look for in, in people? What should the school be looking for? And he said, John, we need PhDs. I'm like, well, wait a minute. We're talking about undergrad students. What are you talking about? He goes, no, no, no. My PhDs are different. Poor, hungry, and driven. And I always <laughs> got I like that. That's cool. I love. I feel like if you don't have grit, you don't have success. So, yeah, and, you know, it's hard. It's it's hard, but the. The other thing that's interesting is I, you know, there's an old joke where, you know, somebody who's striving says to somebody who's very wealthy and striving harder and they say, but I have something that you'll never have. And what's that? Enough. And I was very taken aback and impressed when you said, you know what, I think I'm going to take some time to look at my career and see what I can do to make an impact. Yeah. And I think that's when I, you know, I, you spoke with One and we went through and it just always resonated with me because I feel like most people are not introspective enough to realize, you know what, I have truly, and you've said it multiple times in this conversation, been blessed and yeah. now I can do something. And, you know, this is the Impact Real Estate Podcast. And we'd love to just end with hearing a little bit about something that you've done or that you are doing that you feel makes the biggest impact. And obviously you've done a lot of things so it might take you a moment to think of the biggest but you know there you know it's 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 interesting um first of all i i don't ever really think that anything i do should be characterized as big um i do think that mastering the art of incrementalism is is how you build i think a life's work and i'll give you an example just happened a few weeks ago there's a there's a wonderful center for business ethics up at UMass Lowell called the Donahue Center. The Donahue family in Lowell created it. They're Phil, wonderful. Phil, family. right? Phil? Uh, no. no. <laughs> um, that, that would have been, that would have really been a left, a lot of left field if you'd have figured that one out. It's, it's, it's pure white. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they had asked me to speak two fireside chats where I was surprised nearly a hundred kids came to the morning and the afternoon session around business ethics. Oh, wow. Cool. And around moments in time where I had a really hard decision to make. And how did I make the decision um, despite the fear that came from it? And it's wonderful to hear either through LinkedIn or teachers, faculty members that were there saying how deeply it resonated with the kids, um, the students. So I feel like one of the things that I, I remember I said to my, my senior partners at JLL, when they said, why, why do you want to leave? Why do you want to retire? Whatever we defined it to be. I said, when I think about the difference that I can make in these young people's lives, I feel like I could fly. And I said, I don't think any professional 
experience, including the one that I had, you know, in the later uh, months that I was at JLL, it's an unfair comparison. So that's to me, I think what I feel I can really impact if I can do it through young people at ULI, certainly through UMass Lowell um, and through the benefit of technology with LinkedIn, that you'd be surprised at how many young people will say, I know that this is awkward, but when I ask you a question, you know, in the, in the, the memo thing, I always answer them. You never know where that young person could be. And maybe they, you know, as they're giving an annual report and they run Nike or they run IBM, they say, you know, there was this Greek guy. He never shut up. But boy, when it was one moment, he told me something and I mm-hmm. used it. So that's the legacy. We'll be interviewing him and he'll be like, they'll, they'll tell the story. Who knows, right? Who knows? What, what's the great, um, the great uh, statement from, is it the Quran, where he who saves one life saves the world entire, right? You do it one at a time. And before you know it, you built something. Well, the ultimate pretty form cool. of success is being able to give back, is being a giving back, right? It doesn't really count unless you start giving it back. Um, well, Jonathan, that was an amazing conversation. Thank you for joining us and for giving your, your time to us. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure.